the weed you buy from cookies in Michigan is not what you used to buy in Melrose in LA. And that's their problem. So to do it at scale, it takes commitment. You kind of got to know who you want to be versus who you don't want to be. Because it's what you say no to that will define success, in my opinion, not what you say yes to. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields. And with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Brady Cobb, founder of Sunburn Cannabis. Brady, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Good, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Looking forward to talking to Brady today. How are you, Brian? I'm doing good. This is our uh, live first edition here at Benzinga Capital Conference. So before we dive in, Brady, thoughts on how the Benzinga Capital Conference is going? I think it's high energy. It was, uh, I think it's think something like over 2,000 attendees, which is up from even from the Miami show. I think it kind of continues to demonstrate the interest in the sector with everything going on. Uh, you look at the federal macro, you look at a lot of the state-based adoption, you look at the eyes from the street. Traditional you know, investors are starting to take a peek. It's a great place to come. I'm very, very happy with the attendance and the energy. It seems like people are pretty stoked to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great energy and a great conference. And for our listeners that aren't familiar about you, can you give a little background about you and how you got into the cannabis space? Yeah. So I, I'm a lawyer, but I say I'm in recovery. I'm on like my 11th step, but my, my passion for cannabis, you know, not a lot of lawyers have big passions for cannabis. I've been a user of the plant and, and a big fan of the plant, you know, since way too young, my mom would probably not be happy to hear the actual age. Um, my passion for it comes from my family history. So my father in 1977 and 1983 was one of the biggest smugglers of cannabis in the history of the justice department. Um, so every kid wants to be like their dad. He went to prison. I wanted to avoid that part. So instead of running shrimp boats full of weed into Florida from Columbia, I decided to go to law school, uh, and learn how to change the laws. And he died in 2010. And that was kind of the seminal moment for me to put up or shut up and go do it. So I started doing a lot of the regulatory work in the early years out West, uh, did the first kind of Canadian transactions representing Afria and others as they looked to enter the U S uh, took my first trip to Leamington back in like, you know, 15, Emily Paxia was the only other person I know that was actually up there on the U S side. But, you know, Liberty health started that company founder, uh, exited when they went the biomass route, bought another license uh, called Three Boys Farms, turned that into Bluma One Plant, focused exclusively on premium. We live and die with the quality of our flower. Hands, that's it. So sold that to Cresco. Actually just had a great breakfast with Charlie this morning to catch up. Corporate cannabis was not for me. So we exited management team. We exited last June and we're back in the game. We just acquired the MedMen assets in Florida. So we're getting ready to relaunch those. So uh, after your second successful exit, what was the motivation for kind of jumping back in with Sunburn? It's a great question. So two, two, twofold answer. Uh, number one, I can't sit at home and the, the industry is still, we're in the second inning, uh, maybe for me. And as I look around, we do, uh, we're data geeks. So as we studied the marketplace, you look at the data points and I'm a big fan of headset, we're a client of headset. They demonstrated to us that there's a gap in the market. When I say there's a gap in the market, most of the MSOs, most of the big operators in a state, especially Florida, 70% of the market share in Florida is average product or worse. We specialize in high-end product. And there's most of the brands from a brand positioning standpoint, we're huge believers in the brands are ultimately what's going to matter. They're all very generic, medicinal and feel, kind of very similar to each other, where we're going to go be a very, we're going to adopt cannabis culture. So that was number one, is we saw a gap in the market. We saw, okay, our, there's a lane for us. Second thing is I've always, I've been waiting 25 years to launch this brand. We've literally been working on the brand for 20 years. Uh, we, my creative director, who was a screen uh, screenwriter, playwright, actor out in LA, we went to Florida State together. He began interviewing my dad when we were at Florida State together. Uh, when I told him the story one night over beers, and he's like, there's no way that story's true. I took him out to introduce him to my dad and he started 
interviewing them. You know, we have all the Miami Herald articles. We have interviews with the federal judges, the DEA agents. We probably have a thousand hours of audio, all his Colombian partners, all his partners, every, the, the appellate court judge who had to sentence him, the federal judge who had to sentence. So we built this story and it's uniquely authentic. And I think outside of Burner's story in cannabis, there's really no authentic cannabis brands out there. They're all made in a, in a marketing office somewhere. And we believe it's going to differentiate us. And I've been waiting to release this IP. It was actually supposed to go out as a multi-series Netflix show. And we sold it to Imperative Entertainment in 2014. We bought it back from them when they didn't actually launch it. We didn't put it in Bluma. Bluma was not called Sunburns. I didn't control the cap table. Right now, Cresco, as much as I love Charlie, would own my dad's story and I would be jumping off a bridge. So... We've been waiting for this moment to go back and relaunch it. We think it's a perfect time as brands are starting to really matter to go do it. Getting the capital raise to go do it was fucking hard. But what kept me going was the opportunity to launch the brand, tell the story. So you always knew you'd be back in the game. It was just a matter of time. I took some time off. I mean, I had a hell of a run from Liberty, from Soul Global and the Afria short to Liberty Health to... Three Boys, One Plant, where we built out a business that had 25 million CapEx needs with 14 million. Got to scale. You know, we had the second highest volume on a per store basis. We were the only ones that were there kind of clipping away at Kim. And she's done a tremendous job in, in what she's done in Florida, but just different business models. And I knew I was coming back, but I needed some time off. We took a month off and just sat in Aspen. Uh, and just turn my brain off. I didn't answer my phone for like three weeks after we left. And then it was, okay, let's do some consulting. So we focused our consulting as a team because I kept the whole team together. It was really humbling for me. When I left Cresco and said, I was leaving, my whole team go, we're going with you. I go, I don't have anything. They go, we'll figure it out. So we did some consulting work. We focused on California and Arizona for turnarounds. Two reasons. A, plenty of work, a lot of turnaround opportunities out there. B, uh, Studying those markets and what was moving in those markets, especially Arizona, because that's the most recent state to go from medical to adult use. I wanted to see what makes successful in a flip. So we went out there, we studied, we started running SWATs on those markets. We've been running a SWAT on the Florida market since 2018, 400 pages. We just digitized it with Microsoft BI, where we're actually now scrubbing and actually pulling data every day to see where pricing is, marketing, branding, discounts, everything. And we saw the opportunity in that if the stores that do really well in those markets that flip are well-located stores with high-quality product that have ample parking, the tertiary locations and shopping centers don't do as well. So we looked at them, we looked around, okay, we want to come back into Florida. That's where we all live. I moved my grow team across the country once. I moved them from California and Colorado to do one plant. I, they didn't want to go anywhere else. I didn't want to go anywhere else. So we said, we're doing it here. Then we looked at what's available. Of all the licenses that were available, as we were doing SWOT analysis on all the licenses that were available, MedMen was it was a clear winner uh, with the store locations and the ample parking. I mean, they spent three and a half million bucks a store on build out. Their palaces, um, and they did the hard work. Were Main Street locations, Alton and Thirteenth and South Beach with forty parking spots. Clamata Street in West Palm, Deerfield Beach Pier, Sarasota right in downtown. I mean, these are sites that fit right with what we want to do. I don't want a hundred stores. I want 25 stores because I ultimately believe our goal is to use the stores like Apple used stores to immerse the consumer in the brand and then ultimately be able to sell it elsewhere. Uh, our whole plan is I don't need 150 stores or 50 stores. I need 25 well-located stores, immerse the consumer in the brand. And when the wall comes down and brands matter, now we have a hyper-local brand with a cult following, hopefully knocking on wood, that everybody would want to distribute otherwise and not have that retail exposure. Because in my humble opinion, as soon as traditional retail can sell cannabis, they're going to fucking sell it. And they're really good at selling stuff. That's what they thrive on. So quickly, I'd love to know like the, the sunburn. I know it has some, some history with you and your dad. I'd love to know quickly on that just yeah. for our listeners don't know. And then 
But from the premium standpoint, I know pricing is a big factor in the Florida market. So I'd love to know how you go about attacking that because I know Floridians are looking for deals and you've kind of narrowed down exactly how to approach the market specifically in order to have these premium products still sell well. That's a great question. So on Sunburn, the DEA task force, the the joint DEA DOJ task force that was commissioned in 1981 to take my father down the year I was born, he was ultimately indicted in 1983, was dubbed Operation Sunburn. So it's our little tip of the hat to every OG, anyone that's ever taken a chance to keep the plant, anyone that's ever smuggled. Florida's, by the way, Florida's got a rich culture in that. You know, it is the smuggling capital of probably the drug smuggling capital of the United States. If you go back from the 60s all the way up to present day, there's this. Yeah, there is square groupers. There's there's a there's a seizure in the paper or bales found floating every couple of days in Florida. So. It's our little way to make it authentic and unique to Florida. And that's why we named it Sunburn Cannabis. It's also a middle finger to the DEA and the federal government. So uh, the second piece of it on pricing is, and that's a great question. You know, the average pricing in Florida right now for an eighth is, I think as I saw it yesterday on our system, was right around 42 bucks pre-discount. So the way we distinguish it is I have a hard time discounting a product that's high quality. To me, I hear the word discount. I believe it implies there's something wrong with it. And I think that's why you see the heavy discounts across the big three in Florida, because there is something wrong with it, because the cultivation facilities were thrown together rather quickly. There's not a focus on cultivation. So it's a lot of average product. And we're only right now we have 700,000 and change patients. There's 23 million residents. So the black market is kicking everybody's ass. As I've always said, I don't compete with Kim Rivers or Boris or George Archos. I compete with the black market. That's always been when we built one plant, that was our mission to the team is we are going to grow good enough flour and put good enough solventless concentrates on the market that people will go get their card. They will stop buying from their local plug, sorry, and they will come into the stores and it worked. I even had some of the local plugs coming into the stores to buy product and get their medical cards. So for us, it's about, I reward people for buying more. So the thing in Florida that's often overlooked from a CPG standpoint, and that's where having a guy like Ryan Martin on my team is, is critical, who comes with 25 years of alcohol experience. It's commonly known in CPG. It's not much talked about in cannabis, but there's something in Florida called the Publix effect. And when I say that, I mean Publix has a 70 share of the grocery market. That's unheard of almost nationally for one grocer. And by the way, they own Winn-Dixie's real estate too. So take their share up even more. So at Publix, the consumer in Florida is conditioned to look for a deal because on any given day, there's a BOGO on any aisle. So the, consume, the Florida consumer is kind of pre-programmed to look for a deal. What we attacked it as, because we had a higher quality product is, I will reward you from buying more on a bulk deal. I'm not just going to discount it. So we, you work on, you have to, I, pricing architecture and you have to be disciplined to set it up in a way that you still achieve the, the net price after a discount that you want, but it's got to be tied to quality. And look at what Jungle Boys just did. So they launched with no discounts. $45 Ace, and they set the single week, the, the, the one week record for most ounces sold per store. The closest, I think, truly, truly was had the leader at four and change, 400 ounces plus or minus per, on a per store basis was the record. Our highest ever we ever got was right around 380. They did a thousand out of a store in Ocala on no discounts. Premium product, premium flour, proper genetics, couldn't, couldn't keep it in stock. They actually had to shut the store after the first three days because they ran out of everything. That shows anyone can talk to me about price compression all they want. That lives in the mid-tiers and down. 
you have a proper product on the shelf, it's gone. That was our experience, our inventory at one plant, we were net 40 days and it was all gone. We had a problem with replenishing the stores. So as long as you put quality out there and you commit to that, you don't feel less pricing compression pressure. If you don't, you're gonna have a problem. What do you think is uh, causing all these other uh, operators to not maintain that high quality on the shelves in these markets? You think it's like a multiple variables? You think it's like a common compounding? I think it's errors? a commitment. It, 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 you gotta. I think they're kind of tied to they're tied to the beast almost in a way. And I say that I mean you go out, you go multi-state, you go public. You are now beholden to earnings reports. And when you're beholden to those earnings reports, you can't pull your cultivation facilities offline, especially in a vertical market, to do retrofits because you're then going to miss your earnings. Unless you're a lunatic CEO in this market, want to miss earnings and have your stock down 80%, it's not going to be a fun ride. So the minute what's often overlooked in cannabis, and it's, I think it's largely not, not taking a shot here, but I think it's just it's fact largely most aside of aside from like Matt Darren and Ben there's not a lot of, of CEOs that that have actual cannabis cultivation experience and or commitment to the plant uh, and understand what it means to do premium at scale it's hard it's a commitment you know it's when you're when you're a big wholesaler in Illinois you're just churning stuff out you want stuff on the shelves you, to do that premium at scale nobody's really done it yet to be honest cookies try but I think they got too big too quick uh, they went and did the licensing route instead of maintaining quality. So the, the weed you buy from cookies in Michigan is not what you used to buy in Melrose in LA. And that's their problem. So to do it at scale, it takes commitment. You kind of got to know who you want to be versus who you don't want to be. Because it's what you say no to that will define success, in my opinion, not what you say yes to. So do you want to have 900 SKUs, every ratioed product known to man? Or do you want to focus on flour and saltless concentrates? That's what we do. We're disciplined. That's what we're focusing on. We'll offer edibles, but like the ancillary products that are three to 4% of sales nationally, that's just, that's not go happy to have you go to truly even buy that. If you want high quality flour, come here. You want rosin, come here. You want a good rosin vape, come here. I think your question is a great one. I think it's just largely the decisions you make on the front end of a cannabis business are going to affect the decisions you can make on the pricing on the back end. I think that was overlooked in the gold rush to get online and to get to scale. So I think it was just a matter of, okay, just get it going. And then once you're going, it's really hard to pivot. Because remember, let's say you want to change your garden. You're talking about being offline from a product standpoint for six months, minimum. The decisions that we're making right now in the garden from a genetic standpoint, we're not going to see the benefit of until April. So it's it's a it's steering an aircraft carrier. You know, you're trying to turn around something. You can't just, it's not a quick turn. So you could throw as much money at it as you want, but unless you're committed to it, I think it's just everyone got too big too quick. We've seen brands can go east. Can eventually brands go west? So that's on my, you know, our, our BHAG in the office, our big, hairy, audacious goal in the office is to plant the flag in California, build sunburn in Florida. We already did it with one plant once. We produced flour and concentrates that we were able to take out to California and show off and it worked. And it, my whole thing is it can go east to west. We are going to be, you know, Biggie Smalls going out to the LA rap game. That's the goal. Amazing. Uh, that is 1000% the BHAG for my crew is going east to west and, and showing that Florida, by the way, Florida, it's often overlooked, has a as deep of a cultivation and cannabis history and culture as California. As deep. Florida has been known for weed for a long time. Yeah, huge. And by the way, it's people been growing weed and moving weed through Florida for 50, 60 years. So at the end of the day, there's a lot of really talented growers. There's a lot of really passionate people. It's a part of the lifestyle. I mean, you're in the Florida Keys, you're sitting on a dock, you're smoking a joint. Uh, it's been there for a long time. We just, we lagged in the state adoption. So that's our goal. Go West.
What is one factor statistic operating in the cannabis industry that would shock most individuals? That is actually a, that's a great question. Let me think about that for a second. I would have to say with all of this, something we just talked about with all of the price compression, I was shocked to see the average frontline price is still around 40 bucks in Florida. You hear price, there's a price impression article every three or four days and every earnings report, they talk about it. I think the other thing is the true size of the black market. When you study the size of the black market, it is fucking huge. And the, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. I know I was looking at some data and it said the black market could be like 60 to 70 billion. And we're looking at like the total med and rec market of like 30 billion. So it's just absolutely insane how big that market is. And that's the thing I think on a branding side and a culture side, people understand most consumers, most, most of the big companies that are out there operating right now believe they have to reintroduce this category to consumers. My argument always has been, no, they know exactly what it is. They're buying, have been buying it in glad sandwich bags that are fucking rolled up for how long in Starbucks parking lots. This is not rocket science. You may have to teach them a new, okay, this is a CBD three to one or whatever it is, or this is now a tincture. Or this is how you use your pen, but they understand it. It has its own culture. It has its own movies. It has its own language. It has its own music. It's, I mean, you didn't go to a concert. Look back, how far, how far back could you go where a concert where cannabis wasn't a part of it to make enhance it? It's been making people be able to tolerate their in-laws for generations. So at the end of the day, it's like, you don't have to run away from that. And I feel like so many companies shy away from it. It's okay, no, we're going to be clean. I hate the fucking word normalize. It drives me nuts. No, it already is normalized, guys. There's a huge market, three to four exercise of the legal market on a good day. And everyone's been totally fine buying from a shady guy out of a car or gal out of a trunk and glad sandwich bag. Like no one cared. So you think you have to create this experience where you shy away from the culture. I couldn't be in more violent disagreement with that. Let's do a quick rapid fire. Hit me. True or false. The location of a dispensary is just as important as the quality of the product in the store. True. Psychedelics as a medicine, yay or nay? 1000%. Home grow, yay or nay? Yes. True or false. You have the most appearances on the high rise podcast. I, I'm Matt, Matt from Needham might have me. McGinley might have me, but I think I'm close. What non-recreational state do you think is under the radar and poised to turn heads? Poised to turn heads. Uh, non-recreational state. Poised to, I mean, obviously, Pennsylvania is probably, I think, going to be a relatively good one. Um, non-recreational. North Carolina? North Carolina is going to be a big one. We're a big economy too. They've got North Carolina is going to be a big one. Alabama, we're, we're going, we've been working on our Alabama piece for about a year. That'll be, you know, organically we're going after that. The regs are going to be pretty strict out of the gate though. I mean, the initial draft of everything's non, no smokable in Alabama. So it's going to take a second. What year will Florida be adult use? I believe 2024. When Florida goes rec, will medical operators be allowed to switch to recreational? Yes, that'll be actually, I believe the, tech, the, the framework will be such that the existing licensees will service the market. What causes more disruption in the cannabis industry, interstate commerce or federal legalization? I think it's federal legalization. I don't, interstate commerce to me, and I've gotten much, you know, the cannabis all have a dartboard. They throw my pictures on it. They throw darts at it because we had a few debates on this. I don't think interstate commerce is that going to be that disruptive to operators and brands. This notion that everything's going to go California and be shipped across the country. By the way, flour degrades quickly. Uh, as you're shipping it and moving it, it degrades even quicker. I, I don't see it. By the way, it's going to take a second because you got to think about it from a state-based perspective. The state regulatory systems that are already in place are going to allow for those operators in those states and those products in those states to be protected. The states are going to have their own rule. 
you'll never convince me that this will not be rolled out the same way as alcohol on federal legalization. I believe always have. I'm a huge advocate. Safe banking will be the first domino to fall. And then you will see a three-tier alcohol system. The alcohol distributors, not in a million years, are they going to let someone else distribute the product? So at that point, they're distributing product, interstate commerce, and then alcohol. If you look, there's dry counties. There's dry cities. It's going to be the same framework. They already have it. I, I'm not saying this on conjecture. I'm in D.C. I'm, we're meeting with the alcohol lobby. I you know, raised a lot of my capital for Sunburn from the alcohol industry. The reason they're investing in us is because they see the potential for brands. Retail is going to get hurt in the long run. I think the biggest disruption is going to be federal legalization and what it does to retail, cannabis-specific retail. Because the minute it'll be the C-stores first, followed by the big boxes. The minute that they can have high-margin items like cannabis... Total Wine will get rid of half the cigars and it'll be pre-rolls and gummies at the speed of fucking light. 10 years from now, rank these markets by size, New York, California, and Florida. California, Florida, New York. (laughs) When you started your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? I got right staying committed and honoring kind of what my gut always told me. It was don't take the shortcuts. Don't don't just go do a, take a job or do a deal just to do it. It's what you say no to, not what you say yes to. Cause once you do that, if you, if you go the wrong route and you go corporate, you get pigeonholed in thing I did wrong is, is it's, it's a hard lesson is managing your cap table and making sure you've got the right shareholders in your deal. It's why we took so long to get our capital raised is we were very selective on this deal on who we brought in. That was a lesson and a learning from last time because I wouldn't have sold one plant Florida. We were just hitting our stride but I had shareholders and I would have never gone public. We had shareholders that wanted to sell and they had control over me and I had to do it. So it was a great learning experience to sell a business and go through that whole process and, and everything afterwards. But that was a big lesson. Cap table, protect your fucking cap table because if you want to set this up the right way and, and go the long route, if you don't have the right shareholders, it gets it can be really challenging. And then you're it's the weird experience of you're in the bunker fighting and you're getting shot at from inside the bunker. That's not a good feeling. 20 years from now, we will look back and say, that was barbaric. I can't believe we did that in the cannabis industry. What is that? 100 milligram beverages. I think it's a single biggest threat to normal to, to having beverages be a real category by selling such high dose, some of these high dose products. For the average consumer, if they go buy a 100 milligram freaking beverage and they open it up, and think they can just drink it. That's going to be bad for the industry. It also tastes terrible. It tastes terrible. But I, I think we need to do better as an industry on how we address the public and, and kind of market ourselves. I think, I think there's, there's a gap there and I, yeah, it's making sure we have the right products on the shelves. Which product category are you most bullish on over the next five to 10 years? Beverage, edibles and beverage. I mean, flour starts and ends. I still think the flour market will dominate, but as far as markets that are going to go bigger, beverage is absolutely going to be massive in my opinion. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? That it's a bunch of stoners sitting around conferences and just, you know, not, not sophisticated. And I think the biggest thing is also that if you're in this industry, you're perceived as in, and you, and you do smoke that you're, you're not able to operate a business and operate at a high level. I think that's the biggest misconception about cannabis. And it's one that I love dispelling kind of on a one-to-one basis. My wife, her family, uh, my wife's family who was, you know, I never knew. And now they're utilizing and using, using, using the plan all the time because they realized, yeah, I can function. I am actually, in some cases, right, sativas, you're, you're functioning and actually performing better. Same way psychedelics opens your mind up and allows you to actually have some real thinking and creative. Th- it, it, it takes away the stress that change you and allows us to think creatively. And I think that's the biggest misconception. 
If you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? This is not for the faint of heart. This industry is hard, but you need to be you need to be committed to what you want to do. Plan, identify, study before you make a move. And it's again, I said it a few minutes ago. It's not what you say yes to that will define your success. It's what you say no to. Well said. All right, prediction time. Brady, hit me. It's 2027. When consumers are purchasing flour, what characteristic do you think is most important to them? Quality. Quality is going to drive it. There'll be some markets. It's a a tough question because if you drill down into each individual market, different things drive consumers in different markets. The consumer in Cleveland, Ohio is going to be at a different price point and want a different product than the consumer in South Beach, Miami. And and the consumer in, in... in LA is going to be different than the consumer in Bakersfield. So it's going to be quality and price. They're going to, I think will be the two biggest drivers of product. Kellen. I agree. I think quality and price, uh, mainly quality though. I mean, in like more mature markets, you continue to see like the brands that maintain their shelf space are the brands that are maintaining that same quality time and time again. So I think quality for sure. What do you think, Brian? I think effects. I think when we talk about flour, my mom always asks, is this scary pot? And (laughs) I mean, that's a fair question. I don't know, mom. I hope to God it's not for everyone's sake here. But like, if we know what it'll do from like a a feeling standpoint, I think that'll help people feel more comfortable making that leap back into the category, right? Like exactly like you said, Brady said, people have consumed cannabis for tons of years, but they've been unsure what exactly will happen to them all the time. So if we can get closer to making them feel comfortable when they're making that purchase, I think the category will absolutely explode. I couldn't agree with you more. It's a good point. And I think, again, that goes back to what I, my fear on some of these products that are really, really high dosage. Why? And by the way, on a beverage, the idea for a beverage is to be sessionable. You want to have two to two, two and a half milligrams. You can have two of them in a night, go to bed, feel like a million bucks and get up. Because I can tell you with gummies, as we've studied the gummy explosion, where it's year to year from 42020 to 42021, it was highest growth item edibles with gummies representing 70% of that growth. It, I see it in my own house. So what used to be a date night with my wife and I once a week or a girl's night out for her where they'd go have, you know, two bottles of wine or we'd have two bottles of wine and wake up feeling like shit the next morning has now transitioned to split a 10 milligram gummy, go have one glass of wine, have a fucking awesome time, get up the next morning. She's a yoga teacher and feel like a million dollars. We have watched that. My wife has had more people requesting her to how they get a, you know, how do they go see a physician in Florida after having that experience? That is what you're talking about because they're controlled. You know what you're taking, you take it, you get to where you want to go. That is going to be a huge thing. And I think one big differentiator from the black market that's often overlooked is lab testing. Now we got to do a better job of policing the labs, as we've seen by a lot of recent headlines. You know, they're playing games, chasing THC percentages. So I won't even talk about why I think that's a terrible idea. And we never played that game. But at the end of the day, to me, it's it's incredibly interesting, the consistency piece. And that's where I think the MSOs will thrive, by the way. I think they're doing a great job of it. I think, especially you look at a Cresco or a Cureleaf, they're trying to have that Frito-Lay experience. So what you buy in one state is the same as you buy in the other state, same experience, same tr- same journey, the whole thing. So for Brady, for our listeners, they want to get in touch, they want to learn more, and they want to buy sunburned cannabis. Where can they find you? We'll be in Florida. We'll be operational, flip to sunburn uh, in early November. And the website will be up in the next couple of weeks. We're just going through the approval processes with the state. 
And uh, off to the races, Instagram, Twitter, all that's coming online too. So kind of early November, we'll be launching. We'll be flipping the first four stores in Florida over to Sunburn. And then we'll flip the rest of them over the next call. It Kind of by end of January, we'll be done with MedMed entirely. Awesome. Excited to have you uh, to watch back and see how it goes. I appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you. your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.